The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. This opportunity to be part of something was not only fulfilling from a business standpoint, but really brought me back to being in sync with who I felt like I was at my essence. Cheryl Laughlin has seen it all. As the former CEO of Cliff Bar, the co-founder of Plum Organics, the current CEO of Rebel, and the author of Killing It, an entrepreneur's guide to keeping your head without losing your heart, O'Laughlin has insights and wisdom that all leaders need to hear. Yet despite the fact that Cheryl has spent much of her career at the upper echelons, it has not been without significant challenges, including battling an eating disorder and extreme burnout, which she details in her book. In this episode of World Changing Women, we'll hear the inside story from Cheryl of how she built her career, how she faced those demons along the way, and how she's finally found balance and joy in her career and life. I'm your host, Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media. Welcome to World Changing Women. You've had quite the professional journey from Cliff Bar to Plum Organics to Rebel, and I'm kind of going to take these in three parts, looking at those parts of your journeys respectively. So beginning with Cliff Bar, can you tell me a bit about the process of taking over as CEO of Cliff Bar and what that was like for you? Yeah, you know, it was a very interesting time in our company because it was around the year around the year 2000 and I became CEO in 2004. Uh, so at the time in the year 2000 we almost had sold Cliff Bar and it, we were being told by everybody that as a small privately held company we there's no way we would make it because our competitors were getting bought out by the big uh, multinationals for example Power Bar was bought by Nestle, Balance Bar was bought by Kraft. And so we were out selling the company and it was in one of those really defining moments where Gary Erickson, the the co-founder of the company and now owner, found himself sitting in his office with the investment bankers, the company that was going to buy Cliff Bar and the lawyers. And he, he was sitting there with a contract to sell the company and he just said, you know what, I need to go for a walk. And he went outside, went around the block, came back, looked at his, the people in the room and said, I can't sell. Looked at his co-founder who was sitting right next to him, waiting for him to put the final sin- signature on the contract. And she said, you know, it was just uh, one of those moments where it was like, okay, the world is now shifting. 
And we had to take a a $45 million loan on a $90 million revenue company just to buy her out. There was no investment capital, but she, she was pissed. Uh, She was expecting that we were going to have an exit. So it was a, it was a challenging time in terms of, you know, taking the company, we were very transparent that the company was going to be sold and really bringing people back to say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to go for this alone. And Gary also started articulating this vision for the company, which was very unusual at the time. And now, thank God, we're hearing this more and more and more. And, and your conscious company talks about it a lot, which is that he wanted to use the power of his business to make a difference to people on the planet. And really only heard that from Anita Roddick at Body Shop and Ben and Jerry's. But that's what he wanted to do. And so in 2004, when he asked me to to be CEO and I was be the what beyond an honor and one of the greatest things that ever happened in my life is he 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 said you you need to make sure that this vision can be operationalized. And so that was a big challenge is to be able to show that a company with this kind of philosophy could make the philosophy happen but also do it with a strong financial company because if we weren't strong we, we wouldn't make it. And so we wouldn't be able to achieve our purpose. And so one of the thir- first things I did was to implement a bonus system that was based on meeting every one or exceeding every one of our bottom lines. And we had five bottom lines for the company. And it was, so I went from one to five to sustaining our business, our brand, our community, our people, and the, and the planet. And that shifted. I mean, literally, we had to say to people, it's not just that we have to accomplish our financials, but we've got to find a way to get to organic ingredients, which was challenging at the time. So it was this big shift that I think helped people to quickly understand what it was that we were asking them to do. And like you said, what an honor and also what a responsibility to be asked by Gary to take over this incredible brand. I'm just curious about what your mindset was like during that time. Did you experience any fear being put in at, in the, at the home of such a large brand? Well, it's so funny because when we were on a we were doing a little session between Gary and I and his wife, who's co-owner of the company, uh, Kit. We were sitting in his house in St. Helena, and I was like, I I was trying to get the annual plan in front of them. And so my focus 100% was I got to get them to sign off on this plan and give me some feedback. And Gary was trying to move this conversation to telling me he wanted to make me CEO. And I was like, I couldn't move to that new conversation because I had this goal that I had to accomplish. And then finally, we took it down that path. And I was like, oh, my God, it just really it rocked my world. And I, it was, I, I just can't even tell you what an honor it was. And in terms of being scared, you know, I had the benefit of being really growing up in a lot of ways at Cliff Bar. I had been there, been there total of 10 years and three as CEO. So I had seven years to really understand the company and be a true partner with Gary and with Kit. And so I felt, I felt equipped to do it, you know, and 
we had so much, my God, the company is so big now. I just, I can't even imagine what it's like to, to run a company that size now, but at the time I was just charged up. I was just in so such, um, almost in some ways more disbelief as to how can we really make this vision happen is and is it really possible? And so it was more like, let's do it. I love it. Um, and you mentioned that there were kind of one of the first things you did was set a these goals for bonuses. I'm curious, what were some of the other first things that you did in that role? Wow, you're asking me to go far away back here, Megan. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the things that actually was, I want to talk, talk about something that was a little bit nerve wracking at first. And then I, then I began to really embrace and understand the importance of it after, especially even after Cliff Bar is Gary, Gary is an artist and he was, he wanted to in Cliff Bar create this stage and have us put a, a basically a performance on every Thursday where I would walk people through what's happening and we would do different fun things and all and all of that kind of stuff, like really make it a big company experience together every week where we'd break bread over breakfast. And you know, we, I, I go on the stage for the first time we did this and we had a guy like working the, working the board. We had spotlights on us. I couldn't see. I had never been on a stage like that before. Literally couldn't see. And Gary in my ear, he's whispering, just, you know, stop looking like the deer in the headlights. And I, it was, it was a big thing to have to every single Thursday think of what I was going to do. And I remember that feeling as we worked up to it, like, oh, my God, why are we doing this? Is this too making too big of a deal about something? And I've really become to appreciate and honor what he was trying to do there, uh, to have a place where everyone was getting together to feel connected and to take so seriously this team of people are, you know, kind of our family that we were with and make them feel, just help them to feel just super respected. Like we're taking your time. We're going to take the time to put in, to make sure that this is fun, that you're learning a, a lot. And so I just, I valued so much what I learned from that experience. And speaking of things that you learned from that experience, um, it, looking at your time at Cliff Bar, specifically as CEO during that time period, if you're able to distill down your top two to three lessons, what would you say they are? There were, yeah, definitely a couple of them. You know, one that as we started out the story of the, of the sale is really using business as one of the most powerful forces to create positive change is is very possible. I mean, we now are seeing it done with more and more companies. But for me, having experienced this from first time, and by the way, I should mention that I had complete cognitive dissonance in becoming a business person. I wanted to, you know, fight for civil rights and all these th and and social justice. And I went into business because my mom told me she couldn't pay for school anymore. So I thought I did a deal with the devil. So to me, to have this, you know, this, this 
opportunity to be part of something was not only fulfilling from a business standpoint, but really brought me back to being in sync with who I felt like I was at my essence. So it was such a powerful lesson and I that it's what I've taken me for the rest of my career and quite frankly, the rest of my life. Um, the second thing that was really important is prior to being at Cliff Bar, I uh, I worked for big companies, big multinationals, and at the time I was taught as a marketing person that you had to be very objective when you're dealing with the consumer. In fact, um, I wanted to work on Gatorade, and I was told when I was at Quaker that you know you better not say anything that you're an athlete and you drink Gatorade because they might not want you in the job because I. Uh, couldn't be uh, objective enough. That's what I had learned. So then I come to Cliff Bar, where it's all about the passion. Gary had created Cliff Bar out of his passion. And we came up with Luna Bar a year later because of our passion for women and where we felt like the bar category was missing because really no, very few women were using the category at the time. And it was just conventional wisdom said it was a bar for just category for men, which was bullshit. Um, and so I realized that really bringing your passion into, into the business, bringing love as I talk about it now is, is really, really important because it gets you so much more deeply connected. And I also really realized the power of focusing on a niche. Now, this is a very big niche, 50% of the population, which is, which is important to have a niche which is big enough to grow into. But at the same time, by not just focusing on a mass consumer, we were able to deeply connect with women. And by the way, men still came along for the ride because it was a great tasting bar. But we never swayed at that time from our focus, which was being a whole nutrition bar for women. And then, so I'm curious, it sounds like you have it kind of made at Cliff Bar and then you left. Can you tell me a little bit about the exit from Cliff Bar? Yeah, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, I had grown up at Cliff Bar. It, it, was, it was my everything. It was my world. And I got to the point where where I said, you know, I think it's time. I think it's time that I need to go out and really, uh, you know, really go a little bit introspective or a lot introspective and understand myself. And, and so I can tap into that and move to the next level of my career. And I didn't know exactly what that would look like. But I was ready for that. I just had that feeling, you know, you, you know, there's something that tells you over time, if you're paying attention to yourself, that it's time. And it could be really scary. I know a lot of people ended up coming back to Cliff Bar that had been, that had left because it was an incredible place, but I knew it was my time to find my next part of my adventure. So let's talk about that next part of your adventure. Um, I am assuming that that is when the idea for Plum Organics began to emerge. Can you tell me a little bit about that time and when did the idea for Plum begin to come into your consciousness? Well, so it's, it's interesting because just to note, Plum as a company existed before uh, Neil and I, my co-founder of what was called the Nest Collective and is now called Plum. It was a company uh, run by or founded by a woman named Gigi Chang. And she had this 
beautiful company um, with unbelievable branding, beautiful branding, and this great fresh baby food product. Actually, it was frozen. Um, So she was sitting with this company out there in the ether. And at the same time, Neil and I, we had just been, he was one of those people, he is one of those people where I said, my God, I had hired him at Cliff Bar, actually. He came from IDEO, the, a world-class design firm. And he brought him in to run our innovation. And Neil's just brilliant, just an unbelievably brilliant branding person, product innovator. And, you know, one of those people that you just, somehow you're connected in the universe. You just get each other. And I knew if I started a company, I wanted to do it with him. He was the person. And I also wanted the company to be seeped in great branding and great innovation. So it made sense. So we actually spent many, many days and hours at my kitchen table in Oakland dreaming about maybe what kind of company we wanted to create. And then we began to develop this deal, this idea of what became the Nest Collective, which was we saw all these small companies that were selling, quote unquote, selling out uh, to bigger companies and losing their soul in the process. And now there's, there are bigger companies, they get it. But at the time it was, they're just, it just wasn't there. And so we said, my God, it's so sad. Like, what is the model that is in the more conventional industry that we can maybe replicate in the organic industry that would help brands to thrive in some ways, sell in instead of sell out. So we said, so we created a portfolio, which was a, the so ridiculous of a big idea at the time, because we had, we said, we'd create this portfolio of all these organic brands with baby products and products for your home and product and, and food to eat. And we'd put it under this umbrella called the Nest Collective. And what we began to realize quickly was the idea was, when I say too big, that sounds a little bit weird, like you want a big idea, but it was so big that it wasn't something that was cohesive enough to manage and run. So we started honing in on this idea of developing a a company which would help little ones develop a lifetime love of healthy eating. And so we wanted to get into kids' kids' food because both of us had kids, uh, super busy spouses, uh, and we just we didn't have time to pack great lunches for our kids that were organic and healthy, but they could act, that they actually wanted to eat. And at that time, this was in 2004, when you looked at the what was going on at the Natural Products Expo that year? There were no companies that were bridging this divide of this pain point that we were finding and other talk, talking to other parents, they were finding too, which is there was organic and healthy on one end of the spectrum for kids. And then the other end of the spectrum was really good tasting food that, that had, and we're talking packaged food, that had beautiful packaging that kids would be attracted to that looked fun. And we wanted to bridge that gap because we knew, you know, of course we want kids to always be eating the freshest ingredients that we can, but we knew for parents, being busy parents, it's, it's not realistic hundred percent of the time. So we wanted to make it more accessible for them to be able to feed, feed their kids better. And so that's when the idea of focusing on kids came about. And then 
we looked at this company called Plum, which at the time was about an $800,000 company and just really struggling and needed innovation infused into the company. So we ended up buying that company. And it really, instead of buying other companies, we said, we need to dedicate to this. This thing is just a rocket ship waiting to happen. And when you left Cliff Bar, did you, was your idea that you wanted to start a company? Is that, is that, was that in your consciousness as you left Cliff Bar or did that emerge during that time that you took to kind of find yourself? It was, a, you know, it was, it was a little bit of both because it was on kind of the periphery of what I was thinking about having experienced experience the growth of Cliff Bar with Gary and just being so um, enamored by him as a brilliant entrepreneur. But I, there was probably little fear in that idea because I had never done it before. And you know what? If I would have uh, known what it entailed that I write about in my book, um, gosh, I don't know if I, if I would have done it, if I would have <laughs> entailed and how much harder it was than I actually thought it would be. Says every entrepreneur ever. <laughs> oh my God. But I knew that was a key thing with Neil. Like it, knowing that he would be my co-founder in the whole thing, that changed the equation for me. And I didn't necessarily know that when I left. It just really, I'm like, I got to do this with this guy. I got to try it. And I'm, I'm always interested in that moment when someone takes the leap. Um, and for you, it sounds likely that that was when you guys decided to purchase Plum and take it over. Um, can you talk a little bit about that moment when you actually decided to pursue it seriously? And when did it go from being just an idea that you might want to try to something that you actually had the confidence to take action on? Well, I remember the moment distinctly. So I had been at the time, I, I was... I was so naive in the whole thing. I can't even begin to tell you. So I was meeting at the time, Neil and I were just brainstorming on these ideas. And I was meeting a bunch of different people, um, you know, venture capitalists, investors, other entrepreneurs. And because I wanted to be, leave myself open to exploration and see what was possible. And I was talking at the time to, to this guy and this investor and who happened to have a very similar idea to us and, you know, this kind of this portfolio of organic brands. And so I met him and then I went away on vacation and came back and I had this message on my voicemail that said, Hey, Cheryl, you know, I'm really excited. Let's start a company together. So I'm like, what? He's like, listen, I'll, I'll give you guys some, some money just to really develop this idea. And so that's what we did for a month. He went on vacation. <laughs> then we developed this idea. And it came back and we, we laid it out to him. And he's like, let's, uh, let's start funding this thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I've never done this before. And I'm trying to do this research to understand what I should be doing. I didn't even talk to any other investors on the idea. I just thought, okay, someone's giving me some money. Let's go for it. (laughs) So it was kind of like from one extreme to the other, like, hmm, should we do this thing to, oh, my God, someone wants to fund us. And I I remember talking distinctly to my husband, Patrick, and I said, someone is willing to hand us this money. 
I feel like if I didn't do this, I will regret it for the rest of my life. That's what got me over the edge. So you guys take over Plum. Um, I'm very curious, what were some of the first things that you did? And I'm talking tangible, like, were you guys looking to hire people first? Did you create a business plan first? Did you get emails set up? What were like the very first steps that you took? Uh, yeah, well, we, we, um, decided to just, you know, get started. We, and we had nowhere to work. I mean, literally. So, um, I'm laughing because it was Neil and I, and then we brought in our buddy Bentley Hall, who now runs Good Eggs and Neil runs actually Habit. So two startups. And, uh, and so we came in my house and if anyone knows me well, they know I like it very warm. I'm one of those people like when it's, a hundred degrees outside, I am beyond happy. I'm like a lizard. So they're working in my basement. And I thought, you know, I'll just turn the temperature to where I was comfortable. These guys were pouring out sweat every day. They had to go outside (laughs) like, oh my God, get us out of here. And so it was our first experience to say, okay, well, wait a minute. There's a bunch of us working here now. We got to figure out what our right, you know, how we can work in this space and be comfortable together. So that was literally the first thing we did was go in my basement and set up computers and start working. And um, the other thing we, we did start doing is to say, well, if we have this por- portfolio of products for kids, where do we even start? And Neil had found this product over in Europe and Asia, which was this pouch that you see baby food now all over the place. Well, there was a one company that was using the pouch in this country, in the U.S., for kids' food. And so we said, wow, you know, this is huge in Europe and Asia, and it's so small here. Maybe we should create a line of, of kids' products. And we developed this relationship with this company, Revolution Foods, that focuses on food service. Uh, and just an amazing company with an amazing mission who was part of this investor's portfolio, and they wanted to do some consumer products. So what we did is we basically licensed their name, uh, did a line of consumer products, including this pouch. And I'll get to a defining moment, which was, and I know this is not going back to every detail about the timing of hiring and stuff, but it was a really defining moment for our company, which is that we were at Natural Products Expo East in 2004. And we had this baby food, I mean, sorry, this kid's food pouch at our booth. And we had, you know, teeny tiny, tiny 10 foot, 10 by 10 booth. And this guy comes walking over to our booth. And, and if you know, retailers, they always flip their badge. So you don't know that they're a retailer. So they don't get bombarded. And this guy comes up to our booth and he's looking at this, this pouch and he's looking at the ingredients, he's smelling it. And he's, he's like, do you, could you guys do this for baby food? And we're like, uh, I, you know, maybe. <laughs> we had no idea. And he's like, well, I'm the buyer from Toys R Us and Babies R Us. And we've been looking to bring a baby food in this country in this pouch because it doesn't exist. But if you guys could do this for me in a couple months, I'll I'll take you in and, and maybe not import the, this other baby food. And literally... Neil and I looked at each other like dumbfounded. We had no idea anything about baby food, but we're like, okay, well, if we're going to nourish kids for a lifetime of healthy eating, 
let's try it. So we said, okay, went back to our company and said, guys, this is what's uh, potentially in front of us. It's going to be a lot of work. We have no idea what we're doing. We're going to stumble a lot, but are you on board to do this? And at the time, we probably had about seven people, six people, and they're like, let's go for it. And so we launched, we brought, launched the first baby food in a pouch in this country, and, and hence it's really changed the way the whole category looks. And, and so I'm curious around, there's a, like the tactile journey of all the steps that you took, and I, there's also the financial journey. So you mentioned you had this singular investor that came in fr- kind of from the beginning. How did you guys fund Plum Organics from going from the start? And then as you built the company, what type of fundraising did you end up doing? Yeah, so we took a different approach. You know, for us, we felt like, hey, we developed this with an investor. So we, some entrepreneurs start and they've got 100% of their company because they haven't funded it. We started and said, well, you know what? We have a big opportunity ahead of us. In fact, we think it's a huge opportunity, a huge gap in the market. We don't have the funds to fund this thing but we think it could be really big. So we decided that we're going to take a much smaller percentage of the company, bring an investor on board, and then continue to fund it by working with other institutional investors. So we made, I ended up, I fundraised, I think it was six times for the company, bringing in you know VC, then the next level VC, and finally bringing in private equity. So it was always funded institutionally. And that first investor, you spoke about this investor a little bit. How did you connect with this person? And did you guys put together a full bore business plan to get him interested? Not at all. That was, um, I had met him again just through pure networking with people and people led me to him. Actually, yeah, people just, I can't even remember who it was, led me to him. But as I mentioned earlier, we just had this kernel of an idea um, for this organic, you know, organic portfolio company. And he happened to have a very similar idea. So that's when he said, hey, I'm going to give you, it was a little over a million dollars to develop this idea out. So we basically did it. You know, he funded us to develop the idea out. Looking back at Plum Organics, what were the top two to three lessons that you learned during that time? Yeah, a big one is having taken on a lot of institutional investors is really understanding. This same goes true for your co-founder as well. Really understanding and taking absolute painstaking time to know who you're going in business with, what their values are, what is important to them, how do they work. And another thing is, and we learned this along the way, that your investors, when you ask for references, are always going to give you the best references. And they know you're going to give them the best references. So they're doing a bunch of calling of people who are not on your list. I made the mistake of not calling the people on always on my investor list. So I made some pretty big mistakes in that way. You know, having found out later on this, this guy, Larry, that I talk about in my book, that every entrepreneur that had ever worked with him was, had such a hard time with them. And I, I, I didn't know that because I just got all the good references. And so it, it, 
everything from the minute you sign on with an investor and quite frankly, the minute you sign on with your co-founder, you are making a decision that impacts the future of your company. So you really have to understand what you want, why you're doing it, what your values are, how you work. I mean, as simple things as do you work late at night and you don't like work earlier in the morning or how does your partner work? And what happens when things get scary? How do they react in situations where they've had a hard time in their life? All these things are hugely impactful. It's a marriage. It's a marriage with all these people. And it's so important to do the diligence. And it's hard to do that, especially when you're an entrepreneur because it's scary. You want to just make something happen. You're excited, but also you feel like you need cash. And it's very easy to get into it when someone's real, willing to work with you, someone's willing to give you the money, and you're like, right on. Yeah, I got some help now. So it, it just pause yourself and really think through it. It's so important. Then there was a time that you exited Plum. Um, and then moved on to the next level of your journey. And I'm curious about if you can tell us a little bit about leaving Plum and also looking back on that time, is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah, well, well, I talk about this a lot in my book is that I, at the same time I was starting Plum and going through kind of the difficulties and challenges of starting a company, especially one that's VC backed, at the same time, my husband wanted to start a company that would be fully funded from us. And so it would be more like our family business. So we would maybe have less control of our destiny in Plum, but we would have more control of our destiny in this, in this idea that he had. And again, <laughs> naivete, we put everything all of our finances into into this business um, that he was starting, and thought made, we made the most conservative uh, conservative estimates, and it the company blew up so fast it would make your head spin. And we were so incredibly close to being bankrupt, and uh, you know had immediately move up uh, move out of our house. Um, just it, everything it. Uh, it just shook our world. We'd get calls from collectors. And again, this is all going on. In the, in the very same time, I had been starting the Nest Collective. And I pushed it and pushed it and pushed it to get through all of it, both on the personal side and the, on the side with the company. And I got so burnt out after three years. And I, my health went... Um, went in the wrong direction as a result of all of the stress. It was, I think, my way of uh, maintaining control, some sort of control of things. Sounds strange that that uh, my health went bad. What, what was I controlling? Well, at the time, I was controlling my weight, and I ended up becoming anorexic. I didn't really see that at the time, honestly. I just felt so stressed out. And I was like, I got I, for the best of me and for the best of the company. I I've got to, I've got to roll out of the company. I can't do this anymore. And I actually decided to go run the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies over at Stanford at the Stanford Graduate School of Business because I'd always dreamed of being part of the university. But I I just had to I had to get out. I just had to breathe again. So it's hard. It was really hard. What would I have done differently? 
if uh, what I would have done differently for sure is recognize the signs and listen to the people that have told me that something was really physically going on with me. And I, I wasn't ready to believe it. In fact, I went through two years at Stanford and still didn't believe it, didn't really account for it, just kind of kept pushing through as I always had. I always pushed through. And I finally, we plum sold. We moved up to Santa Rosa to be in wine country. And my life in some ways was perfect. I had to leave Stanford, so I couldn't do that day to day because it was too long of a commute. I was just going to be on boards and teach entrepreneurship. And I could tell something still was wrong. Uh, I, I I just felt really depressed. And that's when I went and finally realized what was going on. And how did you heal? Uh, a lot of therapy. <laughs> uh, went to a therapist once a week, a nutrition therapist twice a week. And it's, it is a, a journey and not a journey on a pleasant walk down the park. Um, it is gut-wrenching. It is really hard. I mean, you think about it, you have to eat every day. So you're as an anorexic faced with this thing of eating every single solitary day, three times a day. And not only that, I was just obsessive compulsive about working out. So uh, it really, it, it's such, a, it screws with your mind in such a big way to be able to understand how it, it's a disease. Um, it's, I had, was at a, something that was talking about, this was a um, conference I was in way later and walking, talking to, learning about people who went through many, many different struggles and what the uh, psychologist that said that was there was so interesting. He, he said, you know, we label these things mental illness, and that is in not even what it is. It's a, a brain disease. And the problem, whether you're talking about things, whether it be anorexia, depression, and so many other things, is that even alcoholism, we don't label it as a brain disease, so people are afraid to deal with it. And I was afraid to deal with it. So it was just going through a very long journey, and I still have to watch myself. I still have to be diligent. And, you know, eventually uh, people say you can 100% uh, heal and recover, but yet, when you look at how screwed up our society is, especially in terms of looking at women's bodies, it never goes away from your mind. But the danger is gone. You know, I'm not, I'm not living in that place where my, uh, yeah, I have energy, my health is really good, but it never complete, it has not completely gone away in terms of having thoughts of it. So I fight it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um... And so I'm, I'm curious about this because you took some time, um, there was some healing that happened, and then you decided to jump back into the fray um, and take over as CEO at Rebel. And so I'm curious about that decision and how that happened. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I had said, I'm not doing the day-to-day -day anymore. <laughs> I'm done. I'm going through my recovery process and, you know, thumbs up, all's going well. And then Paulo Hawken, who is the chief innovation officer and co-founder of Rebel, came into my life. We actually, had, he's a, a kind of brilliant product innovator. The guy is the best beverage innovation guy just anywhere. He's phenomenal. An artist, just like Neil, a true artist, just like Gary. And 
uh, we had met him when we were starting uh, Plum and we tried to hire him and he had, he had co-founded another company, wasn't ready to go. And I'm like, God, one of these days I want to work with Paolo. So we lost touch. And then I get this LinkedIn one day and he's like, hey, Cheryl, I don't know if you remember me, but I co-founded this company called Rebel and it's really great. And we're looking for a board member. So we ended up talking and I thought, okay, this is pretty interesting. So I joined Rebel and I, you know, we, we were going through our first institutional raise. Now, Paulo had been CEO for three years, never wanted to be CEO. He had no desire ever. He wanted to develop products. That was, that's what his calling is in vision and, you know, surrounding himself and the art of making things and taste and look beautiful. And so we're going through this raise and, and he's like, oh, you know, I need, you need help. Can we hire a CEO? So I said, listen, Paolo, I'll help you out. I will do as interim CEO, I will do this raise. And, but I'm, I'm telling you, I can't do this job, you know, permanently. I can't do this job. And so we went through the raise and the more I got to know the company, I was like, oh my God, Rebel Super Beverages has everything that I have seen in the magic in these other companies. It has an incredible product where the founder understands that bridge between having it taste wonderful and being exceptionally healthy. Um, with, this one is unbelievable given how clean the label is. And a brand, it's like, how did he even think of this? Rebel Strands for Roots, Extracts, Berries, Barks, and Leaves, what's in the product. Um, but it's in addition to that, it is an unbelievable brand name. So as a marketing person from early in my career, I was like, this is incredible to work with this brand. And the second thing, and also, by the way, I should say with the, with the super herbs and adaptogens, it had a really unique, it has a really unique proposition. Then the purpose behind the company that we can get into, um, but was in brief started by a nonprofit with the whole goal to uh, use the, the the company as a tool to create a future without human trafficking. And so it was not only did it had a purpose, but it was seeped into the soul of how it was born. I have never seen it where it's a cause looking for a company versus a company looking for a cause. And then finally, and very important to me, is the team of such passionate people with such grit and so smart and so creative and so again important to me is like they're really bold but super humble and 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 that to me was like uh aha and you guys did a conscious company story about this some um issues ago but on really the yin and yang of the feminine and masculine and i felt like not only in this company can we do that? But it's almost inherent in, in each of these people, which is so extremely unique. So as I'm learning all these th three things, I'm like, I got to do this. You know, I could feel it. I could feel it. And I felt so energized because my health was getting better. And my husband, Patrick, at the time was like, uh-uh, you're not doing this. <laughs> And I'm like, wow, they're asking me if I would, if I would reconsider and be CEO and ongoing. And I'm like, Patrick, I feel it. I know I'm ready. It took, if you were standing here, would say the same thing. It took three months 
of me doing it for him to finally be like, you know what? You're absolutely right. This is exactly what you need to be doing right now. And it's been amazing. And so, so you have this experience, right, of you've now taken over as CEO at two incredible companies who have equally impressive founders. So I'm curious, as you took over as CEO of Rebel, is there anything that you did differently than when you took over at Cliff Bar? And do you feel like your leadership has changed in any way in this time that you've gone from Cliff Bar to Plum and now to Rebel? Well, it's funny. I just have to say one thing before you answer that. It's so interesting that you say take take over because I feel like, you know, that is something that that a, a great leader doesn't do is mm. doesn't take over. And what, you know, there's such an embracing that has to happen of what's there and the people that you're working with and knowing in some ways that you're, it's going to sound trite, but that you're serving this team. That's my job is to serve this team. And what I learned, oh my God, I learned so much. I mean, one of the biggest things is that that I wasn't wrapping my self-worth in terms of the worth of the company anymore. I thought they were the same. And I learned it the hard way by what happened with my health. And it's so hard for entrepreneurs because the company becomes your identity. And of course, you're the artist that created it. Um, but for me now, and I'm getting up there in years that I know that I, I am as, as a person so much more than just the company. Um, even if I'm spending a lot of time on it, I'm so much more. And now what I realize, and man, I could talk to forever about thinking about a company as a, is a living system, which it is, which we don't do, which we haven't done in business in this country, especially, but everything we do has an impact on something else. And one of the things I realize is that the love that I get from my family and my friends, even if I'm really busy, I have to have it because it feeds me. And when it, that love feeds me, and that energy that I'm using to take myself away from being immersed in the company all the time, I bring that right back into the company. And I can also bring a lot, a lot of love and care into the company because it's been fed from my personal life. And so it's easy to feed that into my work life and vice versa. When I'm fully immersed in the company and I have this just, you know, positive energy coming out of feeling so intellectually stimulated and going on this journey with these amazing people do, you know, fighting human trafficking every day. I bring that right back into my family. So I'm, you know, my, but we look back, my husband and I, and I'm like, man, you know, there was a time where I was just mean. I was just so angry all the time. And I was just so stressed. And now I just like that, almost like that person went away and I don't, it just, it just lifted. And so knowing not only the ecosystem of what your company impacts, but your own ecosystem and how those come together and how important it is, is so critical for leadership. I was just, I was in this session with this woman Carol Sanford, who wrote this book, Regenerative Business, and we're working with this community of people, of community of companies to, um, such as Waikiki and Numi, to understand how to build a, real, a truly regenerative business. And I was really impacted by one of the th things that she said the other day, which is that she said, 
the energy that you bring into the company and the level of energy that you're operating in has a direct impact not only on the people around you, but it even goes into the product itself because it's how you bring forth your creativity into the world. And so I, I think it's so important to understand that it's not like the company, if I don't focus on the company, then the company is going to have problems, have financial problems fall apart. It is changing that whole mindset and working with investors that I have now who are amazing to understand that mindset that feeling good in your life propels the company to a much greater level and a higher level than you ever thought you could achieve in terms of getting towards your vision. That is so critical, but it is a mindset that has to change in the way we run businesses, period. And we're not fully there. We have so much more to go. But the more companies that recognize it, the more companies part of your community and conscious company, what a difference that's going to make for us to really understand how to move in that direction. This is music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. You guys, you reading your magazine every day is, you know, it's just every time I do, I'm like, I learn something else because there is so much to learn about this. It's so new to all of us. Absolutely. Um, so as we're, as we're getting to the end of the, the time together, I have just kind of some general questions that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Um, so you have children. Um, and I am curious if one of your children came to you at some point in their life and had an idea for a business, what advice would you give them? Uh, one would be run away, run away very fast. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even consider it. Um, no, do, one, do you actually mean that? No, I don't. In fact, <laughs> what I would ask him is, why are you doing it? That would be the first question. Um, and the second question is this is going to sound really funny, but I tell every entrepreneur this that I talk about, talk to. Uh, there's Steve Blank is this just he's thought of as like a god in Silicon Valley in terms of the way he approaches how to, how, how to think about creating a company. And I had I had the honor of we're doing some work with him when I was over at Stanford and. He, he has on Udacity.com, and I'm assuming Udacity still exists because he has this amazing um, class that you can do for free that helps you understand how to walk through an entire business model and build your business model and, one, and things to consider all the way through. And then he walks people through how do you then experiment with it, which is a great way to think about the business is, as you're starting it, even as you continue to grow it, which is, I, I love the quote he says, which is a startup is not a company. A startup is an experiment waiting to find a sustainable, valuable business model. And until you find that, don't, you know, if you can avoid it, don't take money, don't take a lot of money, May and don't put your time and effort and your whole life into it. It's it, Wait till you find the idea that works. And that's why I love, I would send them right to that, to, to that uh, site to, to be able to view that video and really learn from that. 
I'm curious about what is the most important thing in your life right now? I think you might have touched on it already, but I might I might as well just ask and make sure that it's clarified. My my family. My family, mm-hmm. uh, my family is, I, I'm going to get teary-eyed, is the greatest source of joy for me in my life. Um, and yeah, I, I'm just so lucky. And you feel like you're getting enough time with your family nowadays? Yeah, that's what we just talked to our kids the other day. And we said, do you remember when you used to say we didn't have time for you, uh, especially me? And, and it's now it's just this distant memory. We spend just a little couple tidbits on that. Like every Friday night, pa- Patrick and I have drinks together always. Like we have a Friday night at five o'clock drinks. And now that we're up in wine country, it's even better. And then <laughs> we have every excuse you can imagine for a family party. And so, you know, we all week we eat dinner together and everything that's always and no phones, anything else. But on the weekend, I will make an excuse like, let's have a sushi party. Let's have a summer party. Let's have a winter party. Um, they went to New York to visit their grandma. So we had a let's celebrate New York party. <laughs> Whatever excuse I can have to spend time with them and just have fun together, I take advantage of it. Um, and I think I might know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyways. What is giving you hope right now? You know, it really goes down to, you know, the other important thing in my life is that we're doing something really, really special at Rebel and that this could be, you know, kind of the model looking ahead as to how to bridge between nonprofits and for-profits so that we have so much more power together and actually see that it's working. A huge thanks this week to Cheryl O'Loughlin for her time, as well as the whole team over at Rebel. A huge thanks also goes to our production team at StoryPop Media and the entire Conscious Company Media team. If you enjoyed Cheryl's story today and would like the chance to meet her in person, she'll be speaking at the World Changing Women's Summit, January 28th to the 30th at 1440 Multiversity outside of Santa Cruz, California. For more information, go to worldchangingwomensummit.com. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. A StoryPop Media Production.